and trust in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. And then verse 26, she opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Now, we've been talking about the woman of excellence and the mother of excellence. We've seen how this applies not only to those of you who are moms, grandmothers, great-grandmothers. Found out this morning after church, we do have two great-grandmothers. Sue Stewart is also a great-grandmother. So uh, we have two. So glad to know that. Uh, But it applies not only to them, but it also applies, as we said earlier, to uh, you young men. Uh, When it comes time, should the Lord call you to marriage, uh, who do you look for? What kind of woman? Well, here is a lot of what you can look for. And then also how this applies to all of us as a church corporately because we, uh, as a church, are uh, compared to a woman. We are the bride. Uh, And Jesus is our husband. And Jesus uh, is our bridegroom. And therefore, what is true of the proverbial woman uh, individually here is true of us corporately as a church. It needs to be true of us corporately as a church. And we saw there were three uh, items, and it spells wig backwards. You remember, godliness was number one, industry was number two, and then the third one is wisdom, and that's what we'll look at tonight, wisdom, uh, godliness, industry, wisdom, G-I-W, or wig backwards. Okay, you had maybe too much time thinking about that when I was going over my notes. But anyway, woman of excellence is wise and she is uh, virtuous in in her knowledge. Uh, Again, verse 11 and 12. An excellent wife who can find for her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. And we saw that the excellent woman, she's rare. And she is incredibly valuable, very rare, uh, certainly when compared to what the culture exalts in womanhood. And then she is also incredibly valuable. And I think you husbands who are married to godly women, you certainly would testify to the blessing that your wife has been to you in your life. Now, you'll note in verse 11 that her heart, the heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. Now, why does the husband trust her? The husband trusts in her in part, I'll argue tonight, because she is wise. And so he can leave things to her. He can delegate to her according to her strengths and according to her gifts and abilities because he knows that she'll do him good, not evil. She will live in wisdom. She will be productive. Uh, She will promote the house and its welfare. She will not tear it down. And wisdom is a large part of that. And that's why I had to skip down to verse 26. She opens her mouth in wisdom. She opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. So in addition to cultivating godliness, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in addition to working industriously in her callings, she is also a woman who seeks wisdom. Now what is wisdom? Well, wisdom is applied knowledge. Wisdom is is instruction that is very applicable to our daily life. It is knowledge that comes from the scriptures and so that we know the right thing to do at the right time. Wisdom is knowing the right thing to do at the right time according to God's various providences that he brings into our life. Let me just read to you from Proverbs 14.1. 
The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears down, tears it down with her own hands. So here we see that the woman who is wise is a woman who's fruitful, a woman who builds up her own home, uh, who causes it to increase, uh, who is a blessing to that home. And she is contrasted with the foolish woman who, because of a lack of wisdom, she tears that house down. Now, that may not mean physically, but she is nevertheless akin to one who destroys uh, because she is not productive. Remember that Proverbs teaches that one who is not productive, one who is not fruitful, is akin to one who does destroy. Because, as you know, if you uh, lack energy and, and application, things tend to deteriorate. I forget what law of thermodynamics or whatever that is, but I remember one time they taught us that. Energy is constantly needed uh, to maintain and to cause things to grow and build. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Now, this is the encouraging thing. Who gives to all men generously... And without reproach, and it will be given to him. So the scripture says that when we need wisdom, that we can go and seek the Lord for wisdom. And the Lord is very liberal in giving his wisdom. He is generous. Uh, He is not miserly. He is gracious and he loves to give wisdom. and And he dispenses wisdom when we will but ask for it, when we seek it, when we pray for it. And when we seek the Lord as we pray in his word. Because I think oftentimes we gain wisdom from the Bible. And the things that you learn in the Bible, uh, because they come from God, uh, they they are special revelation to us. And because it's special revelation by the blessing of the Holy Spirit, it enables you to be wiser than the wisdom ordinarily given unto men by common grace. And this is why in Psalm 119, for example, I believe that the psalmist says that I am wiser than my teachers. Now, he's not boasting that he's somehow just inherently smarter, more clever. I think what he is saying there, the reason he's saying I'm wiser than my teachers, he is simply pointing out that he has the scriptures. What is Psalm 119 about? It's about the law of God. It's about how the law, when studied and applied, gives wisdom and and helps you in your life. So the more you apply yourself to the Bible under the blessing of God, the more wise you'll become. Uh, This is why young people, you can become wise even though you're young. This is why Paul said, don't let them look down on your youth. Just because you're young, apply yourself to the scriptures and see, pray for wisdom, see if God doesn't cause you to mature in wisdom beyond your own age. Remember, this is one of the things that astounded the people when they listened to Jesus, who was 12 years old at the temple. Where did he, where did he get this wisdom? He's, he's just but a boy, and, and yet he's conversing here with the best teachers of the word of God. Uh, we see it later when he begins, Jesus begins to preach. Isn't this Joseph and Mary's son? Where did he get this wisdom? Where did he get this? He doesn't seem to teach and, and preach like uh, the other Teachers, he, he preaches and teaches with authority. Well, he, he was given wisdom from his father. And you have to realize, you might say, well, Jesus is fully God, and that's true. But you have to realize, don't forget, don't, don't cause the full deity of Jesus Christ 
to compromise your view of his humanity. Jesus had to grow in nature, in, in stature, in favor with God and with man. Jesus had to grow in his understanding, boys and girls. Jesus had to grow in wisdom. Jesus had to grow in knowledge. Jesus had to study his Bible just like you do. So, uh, and Jesus was diligent about studying his Bible, of course. He did so sinlessly. He, he studied his Bible rigorously. And so, even at a young age, he had incredible amounts of wisdom. So, wisdom is available to us in the scriptures. Notice that James tells us that God gives not only generously, but he gives without reproach. That he, he does not uh, reproach you for seeking wisdom. In fact, he commended Solomon. Remember, God basically said to Solomon, ask of whatever you want of me in, in prayer. Now, can you imagine God coming to you and saying, hey, what do you want? I'll give you whatever you want. What do you want? What do you want to pray for? Imagine God saying that to you. And, and what did he pray for? He didn't pray for the life of his enemies. Didn't pray for longevity. He prayed for wisdom. And God was so thrilled with that answer, with that request for wisdom, not only did he give him the wisdom when he requested, he said, I'll give you these other things too. I think it's the principle of Matthew 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and what? All these other things will be added to you. Solomon sought wisdom from God. And God did not reproach him for it. He gave him wisdom abundantly, generously. So ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Um, seek the Lord. Now we see some examples among women. Remember, we're talking chiefly here about wise women. And I think the Bible gives us this, some wonderful examples of godly, wise women. Uh, one certainly we could point out that I did not mention this morning, I don't think, was Abigail. Abigail, Nabal's wife, a woman clearly of wisdom. Nabal was a fool, so his name implied. And Nabal rejected, he rebuffed David when David asked him for some provision. Uh, even though David and his men had done nothing against Nabal, had done nothing against uh, his men or his sheep. In fact, Nabal's own officers said just the opposite. They said that David and his men had been as a wall to them, a shield protecting them. They had more security hanging around David's men than, than they did ordinarily when they were left to themselves in the field. And, and David was, and his men were a great blessing uh, to all the shepherds in the field. Gave them extra protection, extra security. They liked having David there. And so they were grieved when... Nabal answers David harshly and, you know, says, well, who's David? You know, and, uh, you know, every servant's running away from his master these days. I'm not giving him any provision. And then, uh, anyway, so David, with a fit of carnal anger, I do believe it was carnal anger, not righteous anger, uh, entirely. Uh, David girds his sword and he's going to go and he's going to take Nabal's life, boys and girls. And he's going to kill Nabal's household. And the word gets back to Abigail, <clears throat> Nabal's wife. And they said, you know, uh, David has been good to us. And Nabal has spoken harshly to him. 
and I think you better do something about this. We might really suffer here. This guy's going to become king one day. So Abigail <clears throat> puts on you know, all the goods uh, of the household, packs them on donkeys, mules, whatever, and rides out to go meet David. And, and she bows down and she says, let the sin uh, of my husband Nabal you know, fall on me. And she provides for him. And, and David blesses the Lord because not only did she save her own house, but she saved David from shedding blood. And, and it was a blessing from God. Abigail acted with wisdom. She saw the danger. Uh, she saw the foolishness of her husband. <clears throat> she recognized what was coming about. Uh, it was not going to be good for anybody, David, or for Nabal's household. <coughs> and she, she takes matters <clears throat> into her hands and acts wisely. God commends her, I think, in this story. God judges Nabal. He dies. And Abigail becomes the wife of David. Then we have Esther, too. Esther certainly was a wise woman <clears throat> who acted with uh, great courage in the time of danger, you know the story, boys and girls, that um, the, that the, the enemies of the children of Israel were commanded to kill the Jews. And an edict had gone out. And now the king uh, does not know Esther's full identity yet. And so she and Mordecai are discussing these things. And Mordecai, you'll remember, you know, gives that famous line for such a time as this. You know, you've been raised up for this, Esther. You know, uh, and so Esther agrees. And she says, if I'll go to the king, even though he has not summoned me for many days. If I perish, I perish. Uh, so she says to Mordecai to fast and pray for three days and nights, no food or water. She and her maidens will do the same. They fast, they pray. And then she risks her life by approaching the king, even though she had not been summoned. And you know the story. The king extends the scepter to Esther. And she comes in and speaks of what the enemies of God's people are doing and, and uh, is able to save her people. And so she, there's another example of a woman acting with great courage and wisdom. Now, of course, all of this wisdom, not only revealed in the Bible, but in the person of Jesus Christ, all the wisdom that we do see narratively in the Old Testament uh, points us to the wisdom found in Jesus Christ. Colossians teaches us that the fullness of wisdom is found in Christ. And that you, having been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, if you are a Christian here tonight, you have the mind of Christ. You've been given the wisdom of Christ. And you have access to that wisdom in Jesus Christ. You've been united to Christ, who is wisdom itself, wisdom incarnate. All of this is, is yours in Jesus Christ. Now, uh, let me make a few applications. Again, going back to you young people. Um, generally, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but young people generally are lacking in wisdom. Uh, it does not have to be this way, though. Um, sometimes it's lacking in wisdom for a lack of experience, but sometimes it's lacking wisdom just because they're foolish. But note here, Daniel, I've told you this before, that when Daniel went into captivity, he was only 14 years old, and yet he acted with great wisdom. We see many of the early trials that Daniel and his friends were put through and how he came through each of those trials with wisdom, how he wasn't willing to eat at the king's banquet table. Even though the food was not unlawful to eat, 
But he did not want to forget that he was in exile, that his heart, his home was in Jerusalem, which had been destroyed. And he was afraid that if he ate of the king's table, he would, be, he would get used to the high living there in the king's palace and he would soon forget uh, where his heart and his home really were. And so that he acted with wisdom. Uh, and we see this too when uh, dreams and visions are given to Nebuchadnezzar and nobody can answer Daniel, a man full of wisdom, seeks the Lord, and the Lord reveals these things to Daniel. Here's the verse that I quoted to you earlier, 1 Timothy 4.12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. So God is telling us that even though you're young, that you can be full of wisdom and you can be an example to older people. Proverbs says to seek knowledge, tells us to buy wisdom, buy knowledge, and do not sell it. You're to be an accumulator of of wisdom. You're to be searching for it, looking for it. Uh, You are like somebody who goes to the market, somebody who goes to the store, who's looking for a deal, looking for a bargain, a good shopper. Some of you are good shoppers, and uh, some of you, I've been impressed with the things you come up with and how little you pay for them, Um, that the Bible says here you need to be like that, you need to be acquiring knowledge and wisdom, seeking it out, gaining those nuggets of wisdom where you can. Now, as I said earlier, one of those places that you can get that is not only from the scriptures, but Titus 2.3 tells us that older women are valuable to you younger women. Older women are a great asset to a church. It always concerns me when churches uh, are demographically very homogenous and, and everybody's, you know, 30-something years old in the entire church. Uh, I always wonder, (laughs) where are the older women, you know? Uh, Well, we're aiming after younger folks, you know. You know, that's that's our target audience. Well, that's great, but it's, you know, it's going to hinder you in your development uh, spiritually. You know, that the church should have a little bit of everybody in it. And uh, we need older women who are godly in the church because they are a great asset. Uh, to younger women. They've been there, and uh, when you're having problems, uh, development issues with your children, or just need you know, encouragement, uh, it's always a help to be able to go to godly women who have wisdom and who have been there before and know what it's like. Um, you know, there, there was, a, I'll just tell you a story. I uh, was with uh, the Garcias last week, and and uh, uh, somebody came up, and they knew them, and, and they said, well, how's it going? Well, you know, they were having problems getting their new, first newborn to sleep. And, and Beth said, we were at the table, and Beth said, hey, let me tell you what you need to do. You know? And it was interesting how she could just boom, 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 boom. She said, I've done this eight times. Here's what you do. You know? And there's an example you know, uh, of somebody who's got wisdom and knowledge and experience and, and is able to help this brand new mother, mother of only about two weeks, get that child to sleep. So uh, there's, there's an example of it. Let me give you a few applications. Um, first of all, I'd really like to make some applications here to the church because uh, we are the bride and uh, we need this ourselves. We, everything I've been saying to uh, the young women and older women about seeking wisdom and all, uh, needs to be true of us all corporately. How are we going to glorify our husband? And by that I mean Jesus. How are we as a church here at Covenant going to glorify 
Jesus Christ. It is by being wise people. Uh, we want to be recognized, not for the sake of the recognition, but we want to be wise. And we want the community to think that's a wise group of people. The people over at Covenant have some wisdom. And, and this is important because it reflects well on our husband. You know, nothing reflects poorly on Jesus than a foolish church. Uh, a church where it has a bad reputation and the members don't have a very good reputation in the community. So we need to be wise because that is going to honor our husband, Jesus. Now, how, how do we get there? Probably you know the very first thing I'm going to say here. Scripture. Study the Word of God. Makes you wise unto salvation. Uh, this is why we spend a lot of time teaching the Bible. You know, lately, I, I just say this, this is off the hand, it wasn't in my preparation notes, that, uh, you know, lately I've been thinking about maybe teaching the Wednesday night some. You know, we do some reading, but I'm thinking maybe even teaching. I'm, I'm 43 years old now, and I'm thinking, mm. I, began, I began checking off the Bible books in my Bible that I've finished. You know, and I'm thinking, golly, got a ways to go here. And, I, you know, you're like, you're halfway through your life, you know, and you need to, you need to step it up here, boy. Uh, we, we, we need to get through the scriptures. You know, Calvin taught uh, almost daily in Geneva. Um, and uh, we, I've been thinking about spending more time uh, getting more of the word of God to you, even on Wednesday nights. Why? Well, the word of God makes us wise unto salvation. And, and this is our food. This is our daily bread. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And we need this. Uh, James Rensenhouse was just showing me the secret church uh, booklet that he had. And, and how many hours was it? Six, seven, eight hours of six to seven hours of continuous teaching. Continuous, right? Y'all take a break. A few five minute breaks. Otherwise, for six, seven hours, they're teaching the Bible. Uh, this was David uh, Platt. And uh, he simulcasted it. I would have gone to it. It was across the street. They simulcasted across the street, but I had Presbytery that night. So I had to be in Charlotte, but uh, otherwise I would have been there. Uh, but anyway, uh, we, need the, we need the Bible. We need the Word of God. The reason David Platt does this is because he, he felt the uh, contrast when he would go into Asia and to places that uh, you were not openly allowed to be a Christian. They were so hungry for teaching of the Bible uh, they asked him, you know, will you teach us the Old Testament? And so he did uh, in, in about four days, five days, taught them, you know, went through the whole Old Testament with them. And they had one day left. He got done actually a day early. And they said, well, will you do the New Testament tomorrow? <laughs> and uh, so he did the New Testament. And then he got back home and he's got a very large 4,000 member church in Birmingham. And, and he was dealing with the, you know, the contrast, you know, there they were in a very small crowded room going all day and night teaching and then he gets back to his church and of course you know they've got everything and more in his church and and he, he began to wonder he said would my church even go for this you know if we were to do what I just did over in Asia well, I mean would people do it so the elders decided yeah let's try it they decided to keep the air conditioning on but but uh, nevertheless they were gonna uh, they were gonna uh, you know go and, and and do a six seven hour Continuous study of the Word of God. So that's how this whole secret church, and that's why it's called secret churches, because it got started over there when he was in Asia. Got started. Anyway, but nevertheless, there, there, are, there are times when it's good to take in a lot of the Bible. 
and uh, study the Bible. Sometimes you need to dig deeply down, drill deeply. Other times you need survey. You need to turn some pages in your Bible. Both are good. Also, providence. Study the providence of God in your life. Uh, Looking at your life experiences as ordained by a sovereign God will help you grow in wisdom. Uh, Don't waste providence in your life. God has tailor-made providence for you, his children. All of us are are being dealt with by our Heavenly Father, and he tailor-makes everything that we go through for us. And we should learn from providence. We're foolish if we don't study the providence of God in our life. Now, you have to be careful when you study providence. Okay? You think understanding the Bible is hard or portions of the Bible is hard. Studying the providence of God can be even harder um, because it, it is uh, possible to interpret it in a variety of ways and sometimes quite wrongly. You can inter- misinterpret providence uh, grievously. But, but when you look at your life in light of the scriptures, I think with the help of God, you can learn things from your past, from providence, that will help you to be wise, help others uh, as you share some of that wisdom with them. That's why, you know, we, one of the reasons we need to honor the aged is because they've had just a lot more providential experience than us. They've lived for decades more than we have. And uh, they've, they've been through a lot more. They've been through periods in national history that we've never had to go through. I, we've never had to be through a depression you know, uh, I've never been through a world war before. All kinds of things uh, that we can learn from those who have gone through those things. All right, third, discipleship. Uh, receiving counsel and instruction from godly people. If you want to grow in wisdom, you may need a mentor. I think mentoring is a great idea. Uh, I have a mentor. You may not know that, but I do. I, Larry Miniger, who was my pastor when I was in Florida, I would consider him my mentor. We talked on the phone probably on average once a week. Now, there's sometimes some weeks we don't talk, maybe two go by, two or three. And then there are other times we'll talk two, three times in a single week. Uh, certainly when I have counseling issues that I'm uncertain about, uh, I will seek his instruction, seek his counsel. Um, he's been in the ministry uh, many more years than me. I can't remember. He's got an anniversary coming up here. And I think it's 40 years. I can't, I can't remember, but a lot of years in the ministry. But all of us, I think, would profit from mentoring uh, or a mentoring relationship. I think it's profitable, too, to be a mentor to others. Uh, sometimes it sharpens us uh, when we have to think about things that people are coming to us for wisdom. So I encourage that. Uh, Younger people, I would encourage you to develop a mentoring relationship with somebody who's older and uh, who you can learn from and gain wisdom from. And here's another one, a fourth one, and that is what I would call common grace insights from even unbelievers. Common grace insights. That is, we can, as Christians, I think, profit even by studying the people who may not even know the Lord, who have particular experiences maybe even in given fields. Um, Now, you have to be very careful here. Just like I said, you have to be careful with studying providence. You've got to be very careful here as well. It almost takes wisdom to gain wisdom in some instances. Um, We need to be careful. There are some who would think we have nothing to learn from 
unregenerate men. And I think that's a mistake. Uh, I think God, in his common grace, does uh, teach through uh, even unregenerate men things that we can learn and grow in in our wisdom. And uh, those people believe that only believers can have any wisdom at all on a subject. And I think that's a denial of the doctrine of common grace. Common grace, boys and girls, is that teaching whereby we, we say that God gives certain grace that is what we call common, that is, it's not extraordinary grace, it's not redemptive grace, it's not saving grace, but because man, both male and female, are made in the image of God and reflect something of the glory of God, even in their unregenerate state, God, in his goodness to his creature, his image bearer, will give special blessings to. And I think as believers in Jesus Christ, we can learn even from the gifts that God gives to a non-believer if we're careful with it. Now, recognizing that non-believers do hold uh, their views in contradiction to the truth. Remember Romans 1, they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness and, and that, that by nature they are at enmity against God, but nevertheless, God in his common grace can also give them insights that can be valuable. And you can get into all kinds of debates, uh, you know, in this subject. When I was in seminary, this was a huge debate. Uh, for example, is how much can we learn from secular psychology in our own pastoral ministry and counseling? And you have a, you know, a spectrum of opinion uh, on that matter. And I don't want to get into that subject now, but I do believe that there are some things we can glean from uh, secular psychiatry, secular psychology that can be helpful to the pastor uh, in his own counseling. But you also have to be careful because you may imbibe too much of the unbeliever's presuppositions and you end up becoming a counselor who is uh, not giving uh, the right kind of biblical counsel that that may be needed. So these things require wisdom. Um, Christian colleges sometimes... We'll get into debates on these things. Uh, I won't name the school, but a couple years ago, a well-known Christian school got into a terrible uh, debate uh, over this. Uh, faculty members were fired over this very subject. Uh, not, it wasn't pertaining to counseling, but basically it was issues of general revelation and special revelation. And, and as they were teaching, how much could they rely upon general revelation uh, for for teaching truth, um, and, 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 and how do they hold that in, as it relates to the Bible. Um, so it, it can be a difficult subject, and, and godly people sometimes can disagree vehemently uh, on this. But uh, nevertheless, I, I do want to put that out there, as long as you're careful with it, that you can gain wisdom, I think, from common grace insights, uh, even from those who, who may not hold to the scriptures. All right, now... Let me come to a conclusion here. Again, if we go back to verse 10, the proverbial woman, the proverbial wife, an excellent wife who can find for her worth is far above jewels. Okay? Uh, she is, as we said, she is rare and she is valuable. And if it is true that the excellent wife is rare and she is valuable, as the Bible says, it also seems to suggest that this be true for the church of Jesus Christ. We ought to treasure churches 
that seek to be godly, industrious, and wise. All too often, unfortunately, such churches are not plentiful enough, but often too often rare, but they are valuable. And so we should prize, I think, what God has given us, not to be proud, but to be thankful for what God has given us. What a privilege to be in a Bible-believing church and that seeks imperfectly, though, but nevertheless purposefully is seeking to teach the entire counsel of God's Word. What a blessing that is, and we ought to be thankful to God to be able to be a part of that kind of church. And I say that myself as well, who gets to be the primary teacher, but it is a blessing for me too. We ought to also recognize that the value that we have as a church comes from Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who's purchased us. It's Jesus who's washed us. It's Jesus who sanctifies us. It's Jesus who's done everything for us. So where does my value come? It doesn't come because... We're righteous. It doesn't come because we're better than others. It comes because Jesus Christ has given us freely his righteousness. We're valuable in God's sight because of the righteousness of Christ. Our righteousness is but filthy rags, but Jesus' righteousness is precious. It's worth more than gold. It is, it is an incomparable blessing to have the imputed righteousness of Jesus given freely to you, simply received by faith alone. Also, secondly, let me say that Proverbs 12.4 teaches this, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is rottenness in his bones. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is rottenness in his bones. And again, applying this to the church, we do not want to shame our good husband. Jesus Christ has been good to us. Jesus Christ has laid down his life for us. Jesus Christ came into the world to save us. I mean, Jesus didn't have to come into this world to save us. He could have left us in our sin and misery and condemned us to eternity and would have been perfectly just and righteous to do so. But, but he loved us. He set his love on us, on his church. He chose us as a bride. And when he elected us, he elected us. We were elected in Christ. And God set his love upon us, and Jesus pursued us. He came into this world to woo us, to win us, to betroth himself to us by his faithful life, by his substitutionary sacrifice. So look at the love of Jesus Christ. Consider and think about how good Jesus has been to us as a husband. He's a perfect husband. He's a faithful husband. Uh, he, is, he is a righteous husband. And his goodness should cause us to want to be a good wife, to be a good follower, a good church. And the third thing I want to say in conclusion is found in verse 29, 28 and 29. Her children rise up and bless her. Her husband also, he praises her saying, many daughters have done nobly, but you, you excel them all. One of the things I think we see from this is uh, we want our children in the church to rise up and bless us. We want our theological descendants who follow us to have reason to bless Covenant Presbyterian Church. Um, we certainly try to do that here, I think. We certainly try to honor our spiritual forefathers, the Westminster Divines and the Puritans and others who have gone before us so that we could be here today and we want the generations to come to do the same. We want to be faithful. 
Uh, We want to be wise. We want to be industrious. We want to be godly so that the generations that follow will have reason to bless us for what we did while we were living in this world. I, I think it would be an incredible, wonderful thing. I hope God does this. I don't know what will happen to this church, but my dream is that, you know, a hundred years from now, covenant will still exist and that there will still be a faithful congregation in it, faithful congregation, faithful preaching. I mean, that's my hope. That's my, that's my, my fantasy, if you will, you know, that you know, a sesquicentennial celebration will still be, you know, a faithful group of Reformed believers who uh, are, are there and, and uh, that, that the work will continue. You know, that's in God's hands. Um, there are many things against that dream. But, uh, you know, it does happen. I mean, there are churches here today in, in the United States that are faithful, Bible-believing, Reformed Presbyterian churches, and they were started in the 1820s, 1830s. So it it is out there. There are some that are older than that. Independent Presbyterian Church right here in Georgia, in Savannah. Uh, Certainly founded in the early, mid-1700s. I can't remember. I forgot the date. But but, uh, though they they had their seasons of of decline and backsliding, but God was pleased to renew the covenant with them there. And they're still going. What a wonderful thing uh, to, you know, be able uh, to rise up and say, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all, that, that uh, they were faithful. We want Jesus to say that of us. We want to hear his words, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so that's, that is the day of judgment. That's where our real reward is going to be. When it says here, give her the product of her hands, let the works praise her in the gates, I cannot but help think that's talking about the gates of heaven. That's talking about the final judgment. That uh, when the Lord dispenses his rewards out, that's the product of our hands. That's when we'll really get to see uh, the, the, the reward and the praise uh, due to being a faithful people. And, and that'll be a great thing. As I said this morning, that, that uh, reward is going to be far excessive uh, to the real worth of what we've done in this life. But, but that's the gracious nature of God. Let's pray.